0: This episode of The Jewish Views contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing.
1: The Jewish Views on the country's new Prime Minister. Conservative Friends of Israel Chair Sir Eric Pickles tells us what he thinks Mrs May could do for the community. Spit for Mum, how you could help Sharon Berger deal with leukaemia for a second time. And Living with Cancer in the Community – Chai tells us why they are always there at a time of need.
2: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Theresa May spent her final evening before becoming Prime Minister having dinner with the Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis. Mrs May and her husband Philip joined other guests at Rabbi Mervis's North London home for the dinner, which had been arranged some time ago. The chief rabbi described the new prime minister as a friend of the UK's Jewish community and also paid tribute to David Cameron for his work promoting Holocaust remembrance. He also thanked him for his friendship and unwavering commitment to promoting the values of decency, respect and responsibility. Baroness Royale will make her entire report into student antisemitism at the Oxford University Labour Club available publicly, despite her party choosing not to publish the document in full. The peer investigated the allegations at the club after its vice chairman, Alex Chalmers, who isn't Jewish, resigned in February, claiming members have some kind of problem with Jews. The peer told Jewish News that her report was made available to Shami Chakrabarti for her findings into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but there was no mention of Royale's findings when Chakrabarti's report was published last week. A mother from Kenton, whose family spurred the Jewish community into registering as stem cell donors, has been readmitted to hospital after her leukaemia returned. Sharon Berger, who's 65, heard the news following a routine blood test. She'd had a transplant in 2013. Her children, Johnny and Caroline, spearheaded the campaign, which led to a 1,700% increase in the number of British Jews registering as donors. And we'll be finding out more about Sharon's story when we speak to Johnny later in the show. Egypt's foreign minister has paid a rare visit to Jerusalem to try to revive the prospect of a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. Sameh Shukri's trip was the first official visit to Israel since 2007. Speaking at a news conference with Benjamin Netanyahu, Mr. Shukri said the vision of the two-state solution is not far-fetched. And finally, Jacqueline Gold, the chief executive of the Anne Summers chain of shops, has collected her CBE from the Princess Royal at an investiture ceremony at Windsor Castle. The lingerie tycoon, who's 55, was given the honour for her services to entrepreneurship and women in business. That's the news, now the sport with Andrew Sherwood.
3: Thanks, Viv. Israeli President Reuven Rivlin has told Israel's largest ever Olympic Games delegation to make history at next month's Games in Rio. Hosting the country's athletes at the presidential residence in Jerusalem, he said, It's your turn to reap the fruits of all your hard work and make history. We trust you and are confident you will bring medals home. Hupper El Beasheva claimed a dramatic win in their first ever Champions League game, the Israeli champions beat FC Sheriff Tiraspol 3-2 thanks to a last-minute penalty from substitute Maharan Radi. The second leg in Moldova takes place on Tuesday, with the Israelis needing to win two further ties to reach the group stage of next season's competition. And finally, Dudi Silla has bounced back from his disappointing campaign at Wimbledon by reaching the quarter-finals of the Hall of Fame Tennis Championships in the States. The 31-year-old will also be competing in the Olympics next month, becoming the first Israeli male to be at the Singles events since 1992. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk.
1: Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is editor Richard Ferrer and new voice deputy online editor Patrick Maguire. Welcome to you both. Rich as ever, I'm gonna say it, let's start off with the front page. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, another tumultuous weekend in, in British politics. Politics these days is absolutely extraordinary. At some point, things are going to get back to mundane levels, but obviously it's been completely bonkers, and every single political story, it seems, for the last few months has just been headline-worthy. So Theresa May is our new Prime Minister, and the Jewish community seems rather chuffed about that. She has got a very reassuring record when it comes to the Jewish community. Just the last few years alone, she was there at a board of deputies meeting at a plenary holding up a Je suis Jeuf sign in the wake of the Paris terror attacks. She has been to Israel only recently. She's got a very, very clear understanding of the situation that Israel finds itself in. She's been a very great supporter of the Jewish community, worked very closely with the Community Security Trust. She was one of the prime movers, if not the prime mover as Home Secretary in making sure that Doudanet, the French comedian, didn't enter the UK and Abu Hamza was deported. So she's got a great CV, a really good track record and she's assembling her uh, cabinet as we speak. More junior roles will be, I think, agreed in the days to come. Obviously Boris Johnson is the foreign minister and I think that'll go down rather well in Israel although it's raised quite a few eyebrows here. Fallon has continued to stay in the defence job so he's one of the only people that hasn't moved away and got a different portfolio. As the days and the weeks continue we will see how Theresa beds in at number 10 but early signs are very good and very positive the community is welcoming her with open arms.
1: And also we heard just now in the news with Viv that of course she spent her final night before becoming PM in the company of the chief rabbi so he's hoping she does come- continue to prove to be a great friend to the community.
5: Oh yeah, I mean she clearly means business, she's got a thing on her pulse with uh, the speed with which she's kind of reshuffled her cabinet or, you know there's not much reshuffling to do and she's sacked half of Cameron's cabinet and while Labour are still trying to look like they're a functioning party, but if you look at the Royal Report, they're not are they?
1: Well, speaking of Labour and speaking of Royal, of course you are right to bring it to our attention that on page two this week, Baroness Royal publishing a report into further allegations of anti-semitism but there's a bit of a bit of a debacle going on between that and the chakrabarti report what's this about rich
4: Well, the Conservatives seem to get their house in order in double fast time as we sit here in a tumultuous time for British politics when we have to plan how we're going to survive in the the years and decades to come outside Europe. And Theresa May is safely installed with the Downstreet Cat in number 10. The Labour Party is just flailing. Obviously, we've now got Owen Smith and Angela Eagle tackling Jeremy Corbyn who can now automatically go on the ballot without having to get the requisite 50 votes from MPs and MEPs that's clearly going to sign a death warrant, as far as I can tell, as a a layman looking in onto the Labour Party, because... Corbyn's going to win, the grassroots are going to return him, and then there'll be a massive schism. So the Labour Party is going to split between the Moderates, the Blairites, the right of centres, and the momentum left of centre crew. That's all for another day. For today, we have the issue that still refuses to go away, which is uh, anti-Semitism and the wake of the Chakrabarti inquiry. Now, not wishing to bore our readers silly, because we've been talking about this since the cows come home, but the Shami Chakrabarti inquiry was a broader inquiry into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. The Royal Report was an inquiry into anti-Semitism specifically in the Oxford University Labour Club. It didn't get published in full. It was going to get published in full in the Chakrabarti Report. It didn't get published in full. So now everybody's wondering why there is no transparency. And Baroness Royal herself is a little bit bewildered that her work has yet to be made public. So she is planning at some point in the future, whether it's with the party's consent or not, to make the report public. And then maybe, finally, when that happens, we can all get on with our lives. But you see, the problem is with this, isn't it, that if you
1: look at what is going on now within Labour, we've obviously waited for however many months until the Chakrabarti report was published. We, of course, covered it on this programme, and also you did in the paper. But it feels somehow as if this is only a step backwards. So maybe where we took one or two steps forward, we've now taken one or two steps back with this news coming to the surface. And it obviously raises questions such as, was the initial report from Chakrabarti's team believable? Was it sort of feasible? And now, of course, we just it, it feels as if it's happening all over again, but even if it is on a smaller scale, but it's still chipping in, isn't it?
5: Well, I think the problem with... The Labour leadership is that they are unwilling to accept that this is a problem. Obviously, Corbyn's refrain is "blah blah blah, anti-Semitism and all forms of racism." He almost trips over himself to make it seem like this isn't a problem that's particular to Labour under his leadership at this present time. And the thing with the Chakrabarti report, and indeed with this report, is that it reads like kind of kindergarten level diversity training. That it's like you know that people need to be told you know members of Oxford University of the Labour Club, members of the Labour Party, ostensibly kind of well-educated, engaged people need to be told, don't be racist or don't use anti-Semitic language. It's kind of defies belief that the Labour Party is in this state, that it needs to bring in outside consultants to make what is essentially common courtesy yeah. codify. You know? I
4: think Patrick's spot on. It was an exercise in the Bleeding Obvious, the Chakrabarti report. And I've got a lot of time for Shami Chakrabarti. I think she's a really fair-minded and, and decent person who wholeheartedly wanted to get the, to the bottom of this issue. But you go through the executive summary and you dig deeper, and it's only about 30 pages, the report. I can easily read it over a nice cup of coffee at your kitchen table. Anyway, there's, a, there's an image of, of how I read it. And it really doesn't get to the nub of the problem. It doesn't identify the root causes and it doesn't suggest anything in terms of going forward. It simply states, don't be racist, don't be anti-Semitic. You can't teach people to be moral with that sort of basic language. You have to dig a lot deeper. I get the feeling that the Royal Report dig, 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 deeper. Don't edit that out, Phil, because I think that's quite a cool little rap. So I think she really did get to the nub of the problem. Look, we'll see. And I hope that the Labour Party can come to find some measure of balance because, my Lord, do we need a decent opposition right now and we ain't getting one. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think
1: in the ever-changing face of British politics as we've seen it in the last couple of weeks, anything could happen by the time we record this programme next week. Thank you both. That's all we've got time for for this week's look at the paper. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, just in case you have been living in a bubble over the past few weeks, you'll know it has been a bit of a rocky road for British politics, especially as you've just been hearing. We have a new prime minister in the form of Theresa May and a rather new look cabinet to boot. The question is, what does this mean for the Jewish community? Our very own Clive Roslin has been speaking to Conservative Friends of Israel chair Sir Eric Pickles to see what he makes of David Cameron's legacy and his hopes for Mrs May's attitude towards UK Jewry.
6: Sir Eric Pickles, MP you're the chairman of the Conservative Friends of Israel how did that come about well I when I became a member
0: of parliament in 1992 the on the very first day I joined Conservative Friends of of Israel and I've been a, an active member ever since when I left the cabinet last year I was approached to see if I become the parliamentary chairman and uh, I have to say the Accepted with the words, there's nothing I'd like to do more because to me, Israel is a bastion of a freedom, of free speech, of democracy in an area that's not renowned for it.
6: Well, it's fascinating to you, sir, because I can think back to a long time ago when, at the time, very few Jews voted for the Conservatives, and Sir Keith Joseph, I think, was probably the first Jew. Who became an MP? Perfect. Why do you think that, that the split change in has Benjamin happened, Disraeli. Well, yes, but Disraeli was a conversion to Christianity. Why, why, why do you think the change came about more recently? I know David Cameron has been a great friend of the Jewish community, as have you. But it was before that that the change came, wasn't it?
0: I, I think so. I think uh, there has been a hardening on the left. I think there are a number of people involved in the left who are involved with close ties with Palestinian organizations. I think there is a a shift towards anti-Zionism and, if we're being really blunt, a shift towards anti-Semitism on the left of British politics. And I've become increasingly uncomfortable with that. I think on, on the other side, I think the Conservative Party, has become very welcoming to people that are uh, Jewish by birth, as indeed to other minorities.
6: Well, I think, yes, I think that's absolutely true. And it's very interesting from a Jewish point of view that the the new prime minister, the night before she became prime minister, she spent the evening with the chief rabbi.
0: Yes, I uh, I spent part of the following afternoon with the chief rabbi. And indeed, uh, Theresa has been a good friend of the Jewish community and indeed was very influential in ensuring that money was found to offer security and protection
6: to various Jewish events. And again, there's something else that you've been doing, which is you're the special envoy to the post-Holocaust issues. Well, that was last year, wasn't it? In September last year.
0: Well, yes, I was appointed September of last year of responsibility on post-Holocaust issues. It's obviously a very important issue right across europe there are some countries trying to rewrite their history there are some countries trying to kind of pretend that they were entirely victims of the nazi regime when in, in many cases they're people who are working hand in glove with the nazis
6: can i ask you another question though although you doing marvelous work and and as we've said the conservative party is very embracing of the jewish community Anti-Semitism is apparently growing in this country.
0: Well, that's absolutely right. When I was Secretary of State for Communities and local government, I responded to the second report, the all-party group on anti-Semitism, and indeed was part of the group that persuaded the government to start to monitor anti-Semitic attacks, to record them, and to ensure that we could kind of monitor this process. And I think that's been quite a success but I think we need to really remember why we're doing this we're doing this not only to ensure that uh, British Jewish people and visitors feel safe and secure but also it's important to understand that uh, that Jewish people are an important part of the British identity were we to lose our Jewish communities whether to decide it wasn't safe and were to move elsewhere, then a little bit of Britain would be the less.
6: And of course that's the sort of thing that's been happening in France, isn't it? I mean, an awful lot of French people have come to this country, uh, French dukes that is, who because they find there's great anti Semitism going on there.
0: Yeah, I went across to France latter part of last year to talk to Jewish students and to talk to local police. And I'm afraid it, you know, with Charlie Hebdo, the the, the, the supermarket, there is a real worry in France, not that there isn't a determination by the French government to, to do work there to protect the uh, Jewish community, but, you know, if you, if, you can, if you go around London, you do bump into uh, French
6: Jews. Do you think that things are going to look better, from my point of view, from a Jewish point of view? Do you think that what you're doing so marvellously is going to have a true effect? It's got to have an effect.
0: And I think what we need to do is to ensure that there are prosecutions. The hate crime is a particularly heinous crime. It gathers extra punishment on conviction. And I think with police training, with a greater degree of understanding, we need to kind of bear down to on the extremists who are making fellow citizens feel uncomfortable. And part, of course, the problem is is this, that because of social media, the person who might go out and write something horrible on a, ro- on a wall can just send it out very quickly on social media and, and thousands of people can read it.
6: So maybe there should be laws against the sort of things that appear on social media.
0: Well, there are laws and you can prosecute. And as uh, one or two people have found to their cause, you are not entirely anonymous. I always report anything that I get that's unpleasant. And I think certainly after the dreadful business of Joe Cox being murdered, members of Parliament now are much more vigilant to this kind of thing.
6: Yes, and I I read in a newspaper that a lot of members of Parliament are getting rather frightened that uh, similar things could happen to them. God forbid.
0: I mean, if we allow ourselves to be intimidated by this and if we allow ourselves not to meet the public, the whole purpose of a Member of Parliament uh, you know, just starts to
6: go um, uh, away. Is there a good way of the general public helping you in Parliament towards trying to create a better atmosphere?
0: A better atmosphere is recognising that this country has changed, as it always changes, that having a distinctive Jewish community, a distinctive Islamic community or a Hindu community, Christian community, is all what makes up the mix of of British society. It's about our identity. And what we actually need is to recognize our neighbor, respect our neighbor, and to seek to get along with them. And, you know, those old-fashioned kind of British Qualities of tolerance, politeness, and uh, general ability to get on is a thing that we need to return to.
6: So is it fair to say we should all say we are
0: all British? Absolutely. Whether you're a Christian, don't believe in a religion, or you're Jewish, we're all British. We're all part of, of, that, of that identity. Sir Eric
1: Pickles talking to Clive Roslin there about his hopes for the UK's new Prime Minister Theresa May and what her Premier could mean for UK Jewry. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be back for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by journalist Jenny Fraser and newcomer blogger Laura Moses. We will be discussing living with cancer in the community. Plus Diana Toman will be speaking to Louise Hager from High Cancer Care about the services they provide to the Jewish community. Now, you may recall a couple of years back a campaign called Spit for Mum. The idea was to try and find a stem cell match for Sharon Berger from Northwest London. Her children worked tirelessly to find someone and luckily they did. Well, I'm devastated to report that Sharon's condition has returned. Once again, this family need your help. I've been speaking to her son, Johnny Berger, to find out what the community could and should be doing. I started by asking him to remind us about his mother's story.
7: So my mum has just been diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia. It's a form of blood cancer. She had leukaemia previously, the only cure for... Leukaemia is a stem cell transplant after undergoing chemotherapy. We were very lucky after a wide appeal called Spit for Mum that we found an anonymous donor. She had a stem cell transplant in May 2013. Unfortunately, although it was successful and she's had a fantastic three years, the leukaemia has returned and say so we're really back to square one needing to find an anonymous donor to provide that life-saving cure for her.
1: Were you ever told that there was a chance it could
7: come back or has this come completely out the blue? So it was always at the back of our mind that it could return but you get used to the good times. So my mum was under regular care with the fantastic nurses and doctors at the Hammersmith Hospital going to hospital every week or two actually for treatment but things seemed to be fairly under control. She regained a fairly normal life putting in place her own safeguards to avoid picking up infections which she was still at risk of and she's been able to see the birth of another grandchild my sister recently got engaged my mum also off for that. thank you very much my mum also celebrated her 65th birthday only a couple of weeks ago so you get used to the good times and so it's always a shock and a major setback that she's been diagnosed with leukemia once again
1: were there any signs? Did she start feeling unwell? Did she show any symptoms at all? Or or was it just routine checkup that told you this?
7: It was just a routine blood test which she has every couple of weeks. She'd been feeling really well and had enjoyed celebrating her 65th birthday only a couple of weeks ago.
1: Goodness. And so when your family were told this, I mean I can only imagine and I don't really want to imagine frankly sort of how it must have felt but can you maybe describe sort of what it makes you as a sort of a relative of someone going through this, how it makes you feel?
7: It was a massive shock. It really shook us as a family. We know how difficult the process of chemotherapy is. We know how tough it is for mum to undergo chemotherapy and the difficulties and side effects that that brings. And the transplant itself is not without its difficulties So we had that sense of emotion and sympathy for what we know is going to be a difficult time in hospital. But we then pulled together as a family and realized that we need to do our best to support her. And as well as supporting her, we're also calling upon our friends and family and everybody that they know, the whole community, to try and find a stem cell donor.
1: Well, I know there'll be people listening to this who will really want to know how they can help and what they have to do to try and help. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about what people do have to do now to find out whether or not they could be a potential match?
7: So we had some fantastic support in London, in the UK and around the world for our Spit for Mum campaign last time around and an anonymous donor was found during that campaign. We're once again making the call for people to support our Spit for Mum campaign. We need you to seek out those people who maybe weren't eligible to donate previously or register to donate previously. Those people who were too young or for whatever other reason, they they weren't aware of the campaign. There's obviously a lot of people who signed up already, but getting those people to extend to their social networks, their new friends, their colleagues, the people they didn't know before, coming up with ideas to find new donors to seek out new people that's what we need
1: and what's the actual process so if someone says okay i want to see whether or not i'm
7: a match how do they go about that people who are aged between 16 and 55 can register themselves as a stem cell donor by registering they could be a match for anyone anywhere in the world and we want to make sure we grow the register so other people who find themselves in this position will also have the chance of a life-saving match In order to sign up to be a stem cell donor, we're asking for people to register online with Anthony Nolan if they're aged 16 to 30. They just go onto the website and request a saliva testing kit, which comes in the post, fill in a few details, spit in a tube, and then send it back. If you're aged 30 to 55, there's a different charity. You still go on the same register. They're called DKMS, Delete Blood Cancer and it's the same process.
1: Now this is obviously, unfortunately, not the first time that your family have been through this. And the last time that you did this campaign, the Spit for Mum campaign, you seem to get a phenomenal response from the Jewish community. Is there anything that you want to say to them?
7: The Jewish community were a fantastic support for me and my family during our last campaign. We managed to increase the number of registered donors on the Anthony Nolan database by a phenomenal amount we're talking thousands of percent and I want to say a huge huge thank you for everybody who supported our campaign last time and we hope that those people and many more will support our Spit for Mum campaign this time around we really need your help and we need your help within the next six weeks to find a donor. There
1: will be people who want to know how your mother is now she obviously Couldn't have uh, really taken any news like that that well, but in herself, how does she seem?
7: I am amazed by my mum. She is such a fighter. She is extremely resilient. Having had the major setback of this terrible news on Thursday evening, on Friday night, she was cooking Friday night dinner for all of us, making sure that we were all cared for. And now we're here trying to make sure that she's supported. She's started her chemotherapy She's in isolation in the Hammersmith Hospital and she is hoping for the best and doing her best to keep going and ensure that she fights this terrible disease.
1: Well, of course, we all hope she does and that you have every success with it. Just one more time, please remind us where people go to if they want to help.
7: So we're on social media using the hashtag spit number four and then mum, spit for mum, can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram and please try and register your friends and family with Anthony Nolan with DKMS and if you're a blood donor you can also have your stem cells registered as part of that process. If you registered previously with our campaign with Anthony Nolan or Delete Blood Cancer just make sure your details are up to date because if you're a match you need to be found.
1: Johnny Berger speaking to me there about his mother Sharon Berger's desperate need once again to find a stem cell donor to help cure her leukaemia. If you think that you could and want to help, then please don't hesitate but to get in contact with the Anthony Nolan Trust. The website is anthonynolan, all one word, dot org, anthonynolan.org. And come on, let's try and get a bit of positive news out there, shall we? If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, as you've just been hearing, there are members of the community, like so many others, who have to go through the pain and suffering of cancer. It certainly feels in this day and age that there is a bit of an epidemic happening, but luckily organisations such as Chai Cancer Care exist to try and help with the burden. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Louise Hager from Chai Cancer Care to find out more about the work that they do. She started by asking Louise to summarise Chai for anyone who may not be familiar with what they do.
8: Chai started from the heart, started from two remarkable women who met 26 years ago one of them was my mother frances weingarten who was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer and against all the odds survived for another 26 years she passed away of 84 of a heart attack And her co-founder was Susan Shipman, whose young daughter Natalie was diagnosed just before she was three with a brain tumour and tragically passed away just before she was eight. I had the privilege to be with them. It was a hot June night in 1989 and there was electricity in the air as they came together. It was a meeting of their hearts, their souls, their drive and passion that something positive must come from their experiences. They were convinced that cancer had come into their lives for a reason. And particularly Susan, whose daughter passed away just before she was eight. So very short lifespan. And Susan particularly felt that Natalie should not be forgotten and that something long-lasting and of benefit to others, should be established. And that was her legacy, as it were, for her daughter. Absolutely. Right. Now, you say they set it up. What sort of funding did they get right at the beginning? Oh, it's quite remarkable, Both families put in £250, and that was to pay for the publicity to launch a lecture to a lay audience. It was called The Other Side of Cancer. It was a panel of three, two of whom were my mother's oncologists. And it was the first time that there had been a lecture, an expert lecture on cancer to a lay audience. It's important to remember that 26 years ago, there was nothing in the media. There was no internet and there was nowhere for the ordinary person to get accurate, up-to-date information. And we're talking, when you say the ordinary person, are we talking about just the Jewish community? No, no. We're not. Absolutely. I mean, the whole world over, there was very little written about cancer. You had to go to the medical books to to find anything. And very nervously, we put out 200 chairs. This was in Norrisley Synagogue Hall. Didn't know if anybody would turn up, and we had over four hundred people came, and we had to turn away a hundred people. In those days, it was called fire eggs. Now it's health and safety, but there was a thirst, a knowledge for information. And is this particularly now geared to, still geared towards the Jewish community? Do you take in to high anybody who isn't Jewish, for instance? No one is turned away. Chai is a set up to meet the specific needs of the Jewish community. So there's an understanding of what it means to be Jewish. It's, a, it, it's somebody once described, why does a chicken taste different on a Friday night than on to a Thursday night <laughs> or a Sunday night? There's something about meeting around the table. And it's that understanding. And it's being recognized that every ethnic minority has its own needs and specific ways of looking at different problems and dealing With them. But we are funded by the Jewish community. We don't get any statutory funding. So we are primarily for the Jewish community. If there is somebody who has a connection, either through marriage or a partner, with somebody Jewish, then we will absolutely see them and support them. Do you consider yourselves a hospital? No. We, tell me the difference very interesting we just had a dinner in uh, Manchester because we've just we're building a, a much bigger center in in the north and the northwest and somebody described hi actually it was the host described high high takes over where the hospital ends so we support cancer patients and their families it's important to remember that 60 percent of the people we support are the patient and 40 percent of their family members and we are currently supporting just under under two thousand four hundred people, as we speak, from eleven centres across the UK. Good. And when you ask how it started, it started in my mother's bedroom with this five hundred pounds. And last year, we needed to raise nearly two point four million to run the centre. And it is all comes through the community who have walked by our side, who have supported us and thank God have enabled us to develop services when they are needed and how they are needed. Let's talk a little about the services. Talk me through if I was a patient who had just come out of hospital, having had treatment or indeed in ongoing treatment, what sort of services w- would I give me? Well, One of high strengths is that everyone is treated as an individual. There is no set pattern. There is no set number of sessions a person gets. We go by the individual's need. And people will come to us at every stage when they found something before treatment, during treatment, post-treatment. There is no time that Chai's gate doors are always open. If it's a cancer issue and it, and it affects somebody, high is there. But if somebody, like you just said, you've come out of hospital feeling, I would imagine, fragile if there's been surgery, many changes, the shock, the adjustment of what you've been through. So we could help you to help your body through the rehabilitation post-surgery. Often after surgery, there's, there will be radiotherapy or chemotherapy. They can have a myriad of, of side effects, which we can help with nutrition. People can't eat anymore. Problems, mouth ulcers. It, it, it's almost impossible to say what, how, what we could do. Complementary therapies to help deal with that counselling, group support. It's very much tailored to the individual. And if people can't come to us, this is something that most people do not understand. If people are not aware of, if somebody is unwell and not able to come into Chai, we will go home to them. They do not have to put a foot out of their front door and we will support them. They will get everything except a group support. Physiotherapy, everything to help them come to terms and to go forward after the impact of that cancer diagnosis. And make something of their lives. Absolutely. And will this cost them anything? Not a penny. Not a penny? Ab- not one single penny. It's the community who enable us to do this. Cancer has so many... You know, It's one word, it's six letters, but the impact of those six letters is huge. Often financial. People, let's say, in a family, there could be two breadwinners, um, one is not able to work anymore... Many more expenses, going to to and from hospital, and we're aware of that. That is why no one is charged a single penny. Louise Hager
1: from High Cancer Care talking to Diana Thoman there, telling her about some of the amazing
6: work that their organisation does. And you're listening now to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Phil, Dave and me today are journalist Jenny Fraser and newcomer blogger Laura Moses. The subject for this edition has been inspired by what we've heard throughout this programme, living with cancer in the community. I don't really think I need to say more than that. We all either know someone who's had or have gone through cancer ourselves. And it's a tough subject, but it's important to speak about it. Let's start with you, Laura, as you are very bravely going through your own battle at the moment. Would you tell us a bit more about your situation?
9: I found out about a year ago that I carry the BRCA1 gene mutation um, coming down from my father's side of the family. And that made me very aware of what could happen further down the line and made me want to get myself checked. And I was getting my breast checked regularly. I was getting my ovaries checked once a year. And about a month ago, I had two and a half weeks where I suffered from severe cramping, severe constipation. My stomach bloated to the point where I looked about four or five months pregnant and I saw four doctors and was misdiagnosed at some point down that and towards the end my final visit in AE flagged up a swelling on my ovary and I was diagnosed with stage three ovarian cancer that had started most likely from the BRCA mutation that I carry. And the whole point of what I'm trying to do with the blog is to get girls thinking, first of all, about the BRCA mutation, raising awareness for it, but getting young women thinking about the fact that ovarian cancer can happen to younger women and to be aware and vigilant of those signs.
6: And the the story so far has a, a very good going on at the moment, isn't it?
9: Yeah. Absolutely. It seems to have uh, it seems to have got a lot of girls thinking and a lot of girls are messaging into Finding Cyril and thanking me for sharing my story because they have, in one way or the other, felt those symptoms before but never stopped to think that's what it could be or it's something that see- ovarian cancer was something that seemed to be associated with older women even when you carry the BRCA mutation because I know that I'm a handful. It's very rare that it happens to somebody with a BRCA mutation under the age of 30.
6: So, Jenny, have you had any close connection with cancer at any time in your life?
10: Not overly close, I'm happy to say. And that, I think, is probably very unusual. There is somebody in my extended family who uh, sadly died from melanoma, and he was only 27. And despite years of treatment and uh, really constant hospital Appointments and visits and a slew of diagnoses. Um, nothing did any good in the end. I think that there seems to be much more awareness of different kinds of cancer and different possibilities of how to treat them. But I think uh, what we've just heard is remarkable in terms of the the positive attitude and the determination to get an early diagnosis
6: I think that's very important that is very important and and indeed uh, if I can add I have had cancer myself and I went through a position where uh, the the general practitioner kept telling me there's nothing wrong with me I was in a worrying job and I should stop going on about it and it took something like a year before he would accept that I did have bowel cancer And I've been very fortunate and uh, so I was okay. but I I got through. But I think a lot of it is to do with being very positive. Do you not think so, Phil?
1: Oh, absolutely. And what I find amazing is that those who I have seen, and unfortunately there's been several people I have seen, especially in the last few weeks as well, who have gone through cancer, I do believe that a positive mental attitude plays a massive, massive part in it. And... I mean, obviously, unfortunately, that positive attitude doesn't always work out for the best. But more often than not, it's the people who do think positively do tend to get over it. And I suppose that from my point of view, speaking as someone who, I have not had myself. I have seen it. I have lost a grandmother to it. And in fact... It's quite poignant to me. And forgive me, I'm going to find this very hard to talk about because there's three people that I know who have lost their cancer battles in the last two weeks. So it is very, very raw to me. And I do find it sort of quite scary to talk about. But I wonder whether or not sort of addressing you and Laura as people who have sort of say have gone through it. Do you think that once you have had that maybe the fear element is not removed, but Improved, should we say, because you've almost not got it to fear anymore because you've gone through it or you are going through it. Do you see what I mean? When people who haven't had live in fear of getting the big C, is it once a case of once you've actually gone through it or you you have it that you're suddenly your
6: attitude towards it changes? Is that a fair comment? I think that is a fair comment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think I am less frightened of it. Sadly, at the same time that I had cancer, my wife had it as well, and she did not survive. But um, nonetheless, I think I do have a more positive attitude towards it. Do you agree, Laura?
9: I do. And I think that even though I'm on my fifth chemotherapy session I, I think already there's less fear because I'm going through it and I know w- what's to come I know what the routine is and I think going back to the positive mindset I think that's that that has gone hand in hand in there being less fear I mean I remember when we walked through the hospital door for the first time and my dad said to looked at me and said that's it I don't want to hear another negative thing from you I just want to hear positive now from the first drop that goes in that's when you start to get better. And I think that's when the fear started to go away a little yes. bit.
6: And also, of course, the, the, the good news is that many, 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 many more people survive from cancer than, say, 10 years ago. Yeah. Laura, uh, there's one more thing I want to ask you. And that is, you're currently going through the treatment and you don't look as though you're ha- at all. I mean, that's, that's I, good news as well, isn't it?
9: And, you know, I think a big part of that is that positivity and I feel like I am surrounded by it, both with loving family and friends and sharing my story has made me feel more positive and the fact that the doctors around you look out for you in every way so they realise how distressed I was about the chance of losing my hair, but I knew that would accept it if it happened and there are many women and men and women who have had to accept it and you embrace it because it's part of the journey. They offered me the chance to try scalp cooling on my hair to see if that would help and it just felt so comforting that the doctors around me just recognised that there was something that they could do to make the journey slightly easier for me and... Even on a daily basis, when you go there, the nurses and they are so caring, and they just seem to know. They just seem they don't need to sometimes say things, and it just seems like they they just know, and that that's helping me.
1: We've got a comment from Facebook here from Andrea, who says, "What a brave lady in the middle," and I do hope that Sharon Berger, she's obviously referring to the lady who's inspired this conversation, finds a second bone marrow match. And I think that that screams volumes to me just how much of an impression, just being open, honest and talking about it and actually reminding us that it does exist and that maybe it's not necessarily something to live in fear of, but actually something to tackle head on. And it's amazing how actually as a Jewish community, we are so fortunate that our very own Israel is a lead in cancer treatment it's absolutely extraordinary just how much of a part it plays and this is one of the things that i know this is a totally separate subject but one of the things that really frustrates me when i hear people stupidly talk about boycotting israel because i bet if they really had an understanding of what israel does for modern medicine they wouldn't boycott it and they wouldn't actually even be able to boycott it either don't you think, Jenny, that it's the case that Israel is just phenomenal in its treatment towards cancer?
10: Yes, I think that there are so many medical developments in Israel which are groundbreaking and remarkable. And that's because, you know, the country has been thrown on its own resources and has had to do this kind of research. But I think what's really interesting now is that. There are so many different kinds of, of treatment for, and Clive mentioned before, you know, once upon a time, 10, 15 years ago, you had a particular kind of cancer. It was inevitable that you were not going to survive that. And that's not the case today. And I think an awful lot of the research and and the medical developments are very encouraging. The other thing that we find is that so many different fundraising efforts are going into helping fund that research, that that's got to be a really positive thing. And, and I know a lot of people within the Jewish community who have been raising millions of pounds for cancer research work, and that surely one day we're going to be sitting here and we're going to know that there will be a cure. Well, I think also as well that when you hear
1: talks of and this is only I remember this being spoken about within the last year or so, and I'm sure that this is right. I don't believe I'm wrong in how long I think that this has been around uh, immunotherapy, which is the potential new way that will be used as a standard rule of thumb to treat all forms of cancer. And that is the reprogramming of one's genes and one's immune system to actually tackle it head on, which is incredible. If that means that people such as you, Laura, and obviously Clive, I know you've been through it as well, don't have to go through chemotherapy, which in many cases is actually worse than the cancer itself, that would just be amazing. And I just personally hope and pray that that day comes sooner rather than later, as I know that we all do. And as I say, sort of having witnessed three people lose their battles with cancer recently, it's even more poignant than ever to think that a cure can't be that far away because talking about it has made it come on such a long,
6: long way. That's one of the most important things is that people have now talk about cancer quite openly. Uh, As little as 10 years ago, people were still talking about the big C and keeping it quiet and it wasn't being talked about so that you... You didn't get a chance to, as it were, you told you had cancer and you thought, right, that's it. And as we said earlier, the the positive situation is very, very, very important. And I believe I'm right in saying that in the last three or four years, the percentages of people who have survived cancer has grown enormously.
1: Well, isn't it about fifty-fifty now, I think? I it, think it's, it's something as like much that, as 50
6: yes. 50, which is
9: amazing. For me, it's it's lovely to, and comforting to read how much awareness is going on for hereditary cancer and how they are trying to more widely test people for BRCA mutations so they know, because if they know that somebody carries a BRCA mutation and they find out that the cancer is hereditary, then um, it helps them in the care that that person receives and it helps them in the treatment plan that they receive.
6: I I do remember my my brother, who is a cancer specialist, uh, he's a surgeon, saying of one time a few years back that within a number of years, I can't remember exactly how many he said, but not a huge number of years, they will have found a cancer cure for most cancers. But he did point out that there are many different cancers and each one of them is a different illness. But there will be ways of curing every cancer, certainly within your lifetime.
10: Well, let's hope so. Can I ask a little bit more about this Braca mutation? Is this something which is specific? to the kind of Jewish family you come from. I know that there are hereditary cancers specific to Ashkenazi Jews. What's the one you've got?
9: I I carry the BRCA1 gene mutation that has as I said, coming down from my father's side and it's typically found in Ashkenazi families. I'm from a completely Sephardi family and I think they're finding more and more when research is going on that actually, yes, it is typically found in Ashkenazi families but it is found in Sephardi Sephardi families and there have been lots of cases of mostly breast cancer in my family but ovarian as well and it has increased my risk of breast cancer and it increased my risk of ovarian cancer Cancer, but obviously the ovarian risk was not statistically supposed to be at my age. I was at risk of that when I was much older, but it came out through genetic testing that my aunt had when she was diagnosed over a year ago with breast cancer and uh, she spoke about her family history and her oncologist decided to test her for it because it helps them in the treatment plan. So for example, the treatment that I'm getting, the, the BRCA mutation has caused it but the BRCA mutation is something that is helping me through the chemotherapy because it responds well to the chemotherapy. So the thing that has caused it is the thing that is helping me Get rid of it, which I find hard to get my head around. (laughs) But they're finding it in more safari families.
1: You know, the other thing as well, I think, that we maybe don't always appreciate as much as we should do is just how much of a part the NHS plays in all of this, because it's not in every country that one discovers that they have cancer and then just instantly get, I suppose, forced headfirst into a regime of treatment, In the US, for example, one has to have tens of thousands of dollars stashed away in order to be able to afford the complete program of treatment. And the the fact that we have a national health service that almost takes all of that burden away and helps people focus. One could argue that we live in one of the best countries in terms of chance of survival because that worry is removed.
9: I think that's completely true if I think about the hospital that I'm being treated at and the wonderful work that they do.
6: Which is the hospital that you're being treated the at? The
9: Royal Marsden.
6: Oh, well it is. It's, got, it's, it's a world famous. And I
9: think that picks up on what Phil said. Yes. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. I think if also if I could take sort of more of a moment just to sort of talk about... I think it would be important for me to sort of stress at this stage that, well, like I said before, though I haven't necessarily gone through it myself, I did mention as a sort of a throwaway comment that I have seen three people go through it and unfortunately lose their battles with it in recent weeks, in two weeks to be precise. And the truth is that it it struck me from seeing all of the people who went through it, just how it can really affect anyone. And I know, Laura, that you can obviously vouch for the truth in that, sort of being the youngest in this room, and it's not often I get to say that. (laughs) So, but it being the youngest in this studio that it can really affect anyone at any age. And it was my neighbour who was 92. Now, although, yes, 92, anyone could argue he's had a good innings, it's not the point. I saw him a matter of days before he died. And I don't ever want to see anyone in that situation again because he was unrecognisable to me. He was so gaunt and so what appeared to be malnourished but of course he wasn't he just had given up he couldn't eat couldn't drink anything and of course he was maybe at the time i knew this but didn't want to believe it he was dying so yes 92 but then the other people i know were much younger the other person i knew was a mother of two young children she was 48 years old when she lost her battle and she's been battling it she had been battling it for a total of five years and that was probably one of the most harrowing experiences of my life because even though I wasn't that closely related or even, dare I say it, I necessarily wasn't that good friends with her, her parents are very good friends with my parents and therefore it made it part of our family. It made it something that we felt that much sort of closer to and we went through their journey with them. And the scenes at her Lavoya were just too harrowing for words and once now excuse me once now i'm not going to talk about because otherwise i'm going to embarrass myself on air and i'm not going to do that and then also the other person i knew as well was only three years older than me all of this just added up over the last two weeks the last two weeks if i'm honest with you have been two of the worst that i remember in my life but actually at the same time it's been two of the most positive because it helps me to recognize that we do need to make the most of every single moment of every day and just appreciate what we've got and not complain when people complain about the most mundane and stupid things it always annoyed me at the best of times but now more than ever it really cranks me when i hear people complaining over something as stupid and petty as whether or not their phone is working who cares Really, who cares?
6: I think that's a very good place at which to end this discussion. And my thanks to our guests, journalist Jenny Fraser and blogger Laura Moses. And I hope all goes well, Laura, for you. Thank you. Well, time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United
11: Synagogue. The Torah portion that we're currently looking at is chukat, which has all kinds of rules. But there's a subtle switch in the narrative that you might not notice if you don't look really carefully. Until now, we've been looking at the events of the first and second year of the desert journey. The exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the sea, various rebellions. And from now on in Chukat, we're talking only about events of the 40th year. It's incredible. The first event that happens in this week's parasha, after some technical material, is the death of Miriam. And that's followed by the death of Aaron and various wars and challenges. They're happening in the 40th year, 38 years after the events that are described in last week's reading. So what happened in the middle? We don't know very much, in fact. Towards the end of the book of Numbers, there's a list of all the journeys. So we know the names of the places they went to, but very, very little about them. It's amazing. 38 out of 40 years, we know nothing at all. In fact, the remainder of the story takes place over just about 18 months between now and the end of the Torah in about three months' time. It's an interesting lesson. Sometimes the most important things in our lives happen in the gaps. Not every detail has to be filled in. We don't need to know every detail about our own lives, about everyone else's lives. God may live in the details, but he also lives in the gaps. The Jewish stories that we're so familiar with have many, many spaces. We don't know what Abraham had for breakfast when he went to bind Isaac. We don't know what jacob had for supper on the evening he dreamt of the ladder we're supposed to use our imagination fill in the spaces and sometimes those spaces or the lacuna as we might call them give the most information of all because that creative space is what torah interpretation and reading is all about thank you to rabbi harvey bilofsky
1: from golders green united synagogue with our thought for the week And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Sir Eric Pickles, Johnny Berger, Louise Hager, Jenny Fraser and Laura Moses, who were on the schmooze, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including those who produced this programme, Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Justin Cohen. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. Just finally, this show comes at a very poignant time for me, as I mentioned earlier on, and also to those around me. In the last two weeks, I know of no less than three people who lost their battles with cancer. So with that in mind, I would like it known that this show is dedicated to the memories of Willie Cohen, Amanda Coleman, and Simon Cooper. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.
0: If you've been affected by the topic discussed in this edition of The Jewish Views and would like more information, then please do call the High Cancer Care Helpline anonymously on 0808 808 4567. That's 0808 808 4567. Calls from most landlines are free, but some mobile providers may charge.